I have a personal theory that it periodically humanity goes through kind of like a, uh, an information schism or just so conflict, if you will, where some new technology comes out, all of a sudden everyone has to learn how to use that response, that technology responsibly, whether it's a book, the radio, when Marconi came out. You know, so right. now we've got the internet and you have this explosion. And it seems like every time this happens, some technology comes out that disseminates information freely, it causes a spasm within culture. And it's so I'm wondering- I could not agree more. It happened when radio was invented, happened when television was invented. Um, and, and, uh, and, and you're just now, we're right in the early stages of a big moment in the crisis you're describing, where essentially the world's saying, whoops, maybe a 100% free and open internet wasn't such a great idea in the first place. And we're starting more in Europe than in the US to have this conversation about, you know, do we really want to have a world where anything can go up there? Or do we want to think about, do we really want hate speech? Do we really want obviously untrue claims about scientific matters and things like that? So I, I completely agree. We're having the same cycle and we're going through it again. Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, physician, informatics chair at Vanderbilt, and host. I'm at KBJ Vanderbilt on Twitter and www.kevinbjohnsonmd.net on the web. This episode includes a number of people who've become regulars of late. Shannon Rich is funny, irreverent, but also at times seriously frustrated, and all that comes out in this hour plus of discussion. Jane Bach, one of the world's well-known songwriters, returns and also has a lot to say, a lot to sing, and we get a chance to hear one of her big hits at the end of the show. Dax Westerman, an incredibly thoughtful and articulate software engineer at Vanderbilt, and the man responsible for the name of this podcast joins us. This was a topic of interest to him. We talked about it quite a bit, and I have to agree that it was a great idea. We were thrilled to both meet and talk with Nicholas, also known as Nick Lemon, the Joseph Pulitzer II and Edith Pulitzer Moore Professor of Journalism, and Dean Emeritus of Columbia University. In addition to his work as an academician at Columbia University, Nick is a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of five books, a member of the New York Institute for the Humanities, and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He was the perfect person to lead the discussion we had on this episode. So what's this episode about? So, you know, in the field of informatics, we recognize two truths. One is that we can use data to create information and learn from that information. The other is that not all data are created equally. We often use a term metadata, which means data about data to describe the characteristics of data. If I could summarize this entire podcast in one word, it would be metadata, specifically metadata in the real world and how we who live in this world should learn to interpret data. The metadata are often hidden, but I can absolutely guarantee you the metadata are incredibly important. It's a bit of a heady episode, but boy did I enjoy listening to it again. I hope you find it equally educational. You'll hear a few major themes, like trust versus opinion, objective versus subjective, and knowing what to do to stay safe during the pandemic, who to trust, and how to figure out what may be useful and what may be 
not so useful information based on what we will describe as metadata. You'll understand it a lot more by the time you get through the podcast. Politics was an inescapable sub-thread, so my apologies to those who might have a particular political leaning. Please try to listen to the information, listen to the examples, and if they bother you, just eat louder and crunch through them. It's meant for all of us to hear and digest. So enough of the formalities. I really hope you find this episode enjoyable. So let's get to it. Okay, um, so I'm Kevin Johnson. I'm the chair of biomedical informatics at Vanderbilt. I'm also a pediatrician, been doing this work for 30 some years now. Who are you? I am Jane. <laughs> uh, my name is Jane Bach and I'm here in Nashville. I'm actually born and raised in New York City, but I've been in Nashville for 38 years and I've been a songwriter here for 38 years. I, I've been very fortunate, so I've had a lot of songs recorded and I produce as well. A um, number of artists, young artists, some older artists who do some wonderful work. That's my life. That's what I do. Nick, who are you? Um, I'm Nick Lemon. I'm a journalist uh, and uh, professor and former dean at Columbia University Journalism School. Who am I? Well, right now I am um, working with the South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida um, Democratic National Committees on their Senate races. Good for you. Um, I am printing out mail-in ballot applications, so if anybody wants one, let me know. I'll mail it to you because I... I've realized that a lot of people don't have printers anymore. Oh. So, you know, if you think really? about it, a lot of people don't don't have a printer anymore. <laughs> so, this I is must true. be really old because I do have a printer. That's a good well, question. I, right. I got a really nice laser one so I could contribute to the cause. So that's really what I'm doing these days. And she's also underselling herself. Shannon, among a lot of things, she's a Twitter influencer. Um, she is one of the funniest people you'll ever meet. Generally speaking, very raunchy, but still, no, I'm just kidding. That's, <laughs> yep, that's, that's why he invites me, just so you know. It, it's, you know, it's who you'd meet at a bar. Dax, who are you? Hi, I'm Dax Westerman. I am a uh, uh, work uh, in the Department of Biomedical Informatics, specifically in the, I forget the acronym now, it's horrible. It basically, work in population health. Okay, everybody, so why don't we go ahead and get started? Um, I have to say that I'm very interested in how this podcast is going to go. Um, it's really exciting to have Dax here and Jane here and Professor Lemon here and Shannon here. And yet at the same time, I feel like the topic that we're going to talk about is going to tax all of us. So let me just start with, with one example of what I think the challenge is today. Everybody now is dealing with wearing masks, yes or no. And if you live in the South and... Uh, Professor Lemon, also known as Nick, you won't have experienced this yet, but if you live in the South, everybody disagrees with whether they should wear a mask or not. Depending on our, our most recent study showed that 70 some percent of people are willing to wear a mask, but only 27% of them believe that the mask is going to do something to prevent them from getting COVID-19. So Jane, you're, you're out in the real world how do you deal with the mask thing? Do you believe it? Do you not believe it? What do you think? Oh, of course I believe it. <laughs> I mean, I, I do. I believe it. I know that back in the old days, like maybe seven months ago, if I were in a restaurant and someone were sitting next to me and they sneezed without 
covering, you know, without doing anything, that would have bothered me. No COVID, but it would have bothered me. I would have wanted something to either prevent them, like a tissue, or something to prevent them from spreading what they just sneezed onto me. So I don't understand what the problem is. Well, I do understand because I believe it's been politicized. It has nothing to do, I think, with reality. I think people who listen to science understand what they need to do. And I think people who listen to other people, uh, the administration, whatever, whatever, they don't believe it. They look at it as a, it's a politicization of a medical situation. It's just bizarre to me. It is really bizarre. I don't get it. Well, but here's the other side of it. If you look back at the CDC and the WHO recommendations, the World Health Organization in March, even if you were to go to Vanderbilt and talk to our CEO in March, there was an unclear situation about the value of wearing masks. And the CDC and the WHO both said that while masks may prevent something, the fact of the matter is, especially if it's large droplets, the fact of the matter is that it was minimal. What we then discovered was that the evidence changed. And as more and more people were getting these super spreader events, they were finding out that it appeared masks in set certain situations made it less likely that a super spreader event would occur. So you were one of those people who from the very beginning believed that masks were useful. Well, I just, from my own experience, it made sense to me. Now, I, what would you say? I knew you were gonna say that. The reality is we've never dealt with this before, this particular virus, right? So there's going to be a learning curve. And to me, when there's a learning curve, and it intersects with a reality curve of people getting infected and people getting sick and people dying, things change. Well, you used to say you didn't have to wear a mask. You were lying. No, they weren't lying. They just didn't know. And as people, as we learn, not we, but as the um, medical community, the researchers, as they learn what is going on with this virus, things are gonna change. You know, if you were talking about truth, to me, there's a difference between truth and facts. Hmm. And, and uh, you know, everyone has their own personal truth. It may be raining out, and that's a fact. But that may be wonderful for me. I love the rain. You may not like the rain. You may have arthritis, and it makes you uncomfortable. So your truth is a rainy day is not a good day. My truth is a rainy day is a great day. But the fact is, it's raining. And so that, to me, I mean... That's probably very unscientific and very ignorant of me, but that's yeah, the way. Right now, right now, we can't even agree that it's raining. <laughs> well, that's. That, I mean, that that's really where we are. Like, people are disagreeing about whether it's raining or not. It's well, people, a lot of people are just not believing their own eyes, their own ears, their own experience. And I don't understand it. Well, I want to say, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I know I don't sound like it, but I'm a fifth generation Louisianan. Um, so I, I, I want to. Um, you got that really well. <laughs> so I want to push back against the South bashing a little bit by saying, you know, I live in Upper West Side of Manhattan, one of the most liberal neighborhoods in the country. And, you know, we have a version of this also. It's just in the other direction. So for instance, as I understand the science, if you are speeding along uh, a bike path uh, on a 12 speed bike, 
you don't really have to be wearing a mask. You're not going to be infected and nobody's going to, and you're not going to infect anybody because there's not enough sustained contact. But it's changing a little now in my neighborhood. If you're riding by on a bike without a mask on, people start yelling at you, you know, and, and um, the debate about schools, which is complicated and, and involves, you know, weighing things that have disadvantages on both sides. You know, this default in my neighborhood is Donald Trump wants to reopen schools, therefore we can't reopen schools. So, so it, it goes to a, a sort of emotional and political loyalty reaction over um, a, a fact-based reaction. And that's partly because in, in, with, with COVID-19 in particular, it's very hard right now, even these months into the disease, to say we know exactly what the risks are in every situation. And we know we have really solid scientific evidence on how it's transmitted and, and what the infection rates are, serious illness rates and death rates. We don't know those things. So that leads to some of this. Um, and a big part of my life, my colleagues who are, um, shall we say, over 39 years old, um, who are on the faculty and who pride themselves on being attentive to scientific evidence, uh, almost all of them say, I will not enter the campus under any circumstances because I know I will get sick and die. To me, that's an emotional reaction. And you're finding that in universities all over America. Um, and and, and uh, so even if you are a scientist or pride yourself on thinking scientifically, there's a human being sitting inside you who makes emotional decisions. So I want to come back to this. Dax, from, from your perspective, you're, you live in a more rural area, don't you? Somewhat, yes. And, and, this, and what we've learned about, about coronavirus right now is that it seems to be flipping and we seem to be having more outbreaks in rural areas because of some of the industries there. Do you run into a lot of people who are conflicted about this? You know, it's interesting. Um, it depends on which store you go to. I found, for example, just to you know, if I go to like a, a popular chain store, you might find um, people who uh, might mix a little more from different walks of life. You'll find maybe 90% of the people wearing masks. Um, if you go to like the little local hardware store run by a mom and pop, nobody wearing masks. And I think that's more representative of, I haven't really entered into a debate with or a discussion with anybody, but I'm, I'm noticing that there seems to be some whether it's an informa information, re who receives their information, how they communicate that information, whether it's from news or just you know, person to person, neighbor to neighbor, there seems to be some boundary condition that's making some set of the population moving in one direction with their way of doing things, you know, vis-a-vis -vis not wearing a mask versus others, whether it's because of different information coming to them or how they view the world or whether it's social pressure, what have you, that they'll, they'll aggregate together. And for some, like I said, I use the store example because that's where I've just noticed it seeming to be that way around here more and more notice the same thing. So why do you guys think this is? There's a really profound, I mean, there's been some interesting research lately on uh, what makes someone a liberal or conservative, um, showing that it, it goes deep into, it's not just how do you feel about an issue, it goes deep into sort of personality type, worldview, etc. Like, if you ask someone on a poll, is it okay to spank a child? that correlates really highly with what political party you're in, even though it's not a political question. 
Mm. So, so people have these sort of fundamental dispositions about life that they pour into how they think about coronavirus, whom to vote for for president, et cetera, uh, that aren't supposed to be about that, but, but inevitably they are. I assume it's the Democrats who say it's not okay to spank? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think yes. it's okay. I raised three children and I never laid a hand on any of them, and that's the truth. I would just point my finger. Yeah. Raise my bones. <laughs> so, so I'm going to push on Nick a little bit more here. So, I hear you say that you're um, intrigued by the fact that the pendulum has swung too far in some aspects of New York City. I'm hearing Dak say that the pendulum hasn't swung far enough in some of the areas where he lives. And I figure, I, I have to believe that as a journalist, as a world-renowned journalist, this is something that you would say journalism is hurting us in some way, that, that this is something that we should be solving. So what's gone wrong? Well, <laughs> the country, so, you know, as you scientists would say, you know, everything's about the denominator, right? Right. So if you... Um, went back to the most of the 19th century, journalism was nakedly partisan. Many towns in America would have two papers, one called the Democrat and one called the Republican. Wow. It wasn't assumed that journalists were supposed to give objective reality. That came up as a norm in you know the 20th century and peaked probably two thirds of the way, three quarters of the way through the 20th century. But you had a very different media environment then. Um, you know, the time when obviously there was no internet, there was no cable TV during those days. And, and the country generally was in a very sort of top-down place with yep. all the bad that implies as well as maybe some good. And so you had, you know, Walter Cronkite on TV for 22 minutes every night saying, this is we'd sign off with that that's the way it is and and there was a lot of trust around that yeah. you know now my generation once young if you can believe it we hated walter cronkite you know so so we live in the world we wanted to live in a world where many many people could have their voices broadcast to any the whole world and anybody could choose what information to get uh, but when that happens, it, it takes away from an atmosphere where a small number of professional journalists are presumed to have this kind of professional authority and trust and be the keepers of the truth. We're not in that anymore. And, and um, well, you know, I have this that word again, Kevin, trust. Yeah, I know. What's happening now, well, what's happening now is no one, and I, I, I say this, it's, I'm not an authority, it seems like hardly anyone, I can't be finite like that, hardly anyone knows who to trust anymore. I know that I trust the sources that I've always trust, trusted. I grew up with the New York Times. I trust the New York Times. I trust the Washington Post. I trust MSNBC. I mean, these are things I trust because they've proven to me that they're trustworthy. Doesn't mean they're perfect and it doesn't mean they haven't made mistakes, but to me, they are, have shown a sense of trustworthiness. And I would not trust Fox. Yeah. I would not trust QAnon. I would not trust any of those other extreme right wing, uh, either publications or TV stations or whatever, because they've not proven themselves to be truthful to me. They've not proven themselves to be anything based on fact. 
That's funny. Actually, I, two out of three isn't bad. I don't know that I would trust MSNBC as much as I. But really, I do. <laughs> I feel like that pendulum has also swung too far. I think it speaks to the question of, especially right now, what do we accept as the authority at such times? For example, you know, I have several authorities in my life. Um, one of them is the work I do. One of them is my mother, <laughs> you know, telling me what I should go wear the mask. One of them is the news I consume. And so there's different uh, power I associate. I give Grant each authority and how it determines what I do in my life. And I think maybe going back to what I'd said earlier, when I see these you know, see different people out and about, while I couldn't say for certain this was the case, it, I could probably say that, you know, in some smaller, more contained, when I see people out fishing on, by the lake, and those may be the people that uh, subject, you know, they, they offer the authority in their life to their family, the people close to around them, and completely eschew any news source. Whereas others may completely embrace you know, in uh, New York Times or CNN or what have you, as the authority. And so I think that also speaks a little bit to how different behavior is going on at this time as well, and also speaks to potentially how you would then advise those different groups, you know, based upon what they believe, like you'd said before, Jane, their truth. It, well, people are also very drawn to information that reinforces their current belief. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't want this pandemic to be bad. I don't want it to destroy the economy. I don't want this to be happening. And, and just your refusal to accept what's real and what is happening and what has, all of us are what? One degree of separation from somebody that has either had this or died from it at this point. I mean, you know, but if you're drawn to something that just reinforces what you already believe, it's going to be really hard to put on a mask. It's going to be really hard. You already believe that this is all blown out of proportion. It's political. Da, da, da. Then if you put on a mask, you're showing disloyalty to that, to your own core belief, right? I mean, I think it's like somebody who finally finds out the truth about their origins. Maybe they were adopted or whatever. I don't know. They find out the truth and that they've been lied to their whole life. So it's very difficult to suddenly accept something that goes against everything you believed. I, I hear about this much more now that coronavirus has come into these rural places. And, and you know, Tennessee's definitely got our cases going up and there's all this talk about school. But I'm hearing more about it now, people going, I don't know who to believe, I don't know who to believe. And the reason that they're asking that question is that the sources that they have been believing about this virus now it collides with the reality of their life. And that is why they're having such a hard time with this. Hmm. Like, it, it, you know, I, I believe Sean Hannity, I believe the president, I believe I should take this crazy fish tank cleaner. I believe all this. <laughs> and now, you know, now your husband, had, and this has happened to a friend of mine, her husband who refused to wear a mask, and this was all stupid, 23 straight days he's been on a ventilator right now. Wow. Now, he can't talk and tell somebody whether he's changed his mind on wearing a mask. But, I mean, I would much rather somebody yell at me for riding my 12-speed my bike and not wearing a mask, even though I would much rather somebody yell at me and be on that side of the fence and be crazy than be on the ventilator side of the fence and be crazy. Shannon's describing somebody who has had an enormous around, uh, amount of evidence coupled with a, you know, a clear outcome, I guess, of not paying attention to it. I, I always kind of hoped that those people would be spokespeople. And to Dax's point about you know, informatics thinking, I've always felt like 
that's the alert and reminder somebody needed was John got sick. John wasn't wearing a mask. Masks aren't. Don't be John. Huh? Don't be John. Yeah, don't John be John. John got sick. John wasn't wearing a mask. Don't be John. Hey, yeah. it's real simple. But, but I mean, I think we're really dealing with something that, you know, it, it terrifies me. I, I'll just be honest with you. The, the, the mindset of people in Tennessee, it just absolutely terrifies me. Well, but we're, but honestly, we're hearing it from both sides, right? We're hearing that, you know, Tennessee swings in one direction, which is don't wear a mask when you should. We're hearing that there's also the Nick side, which I imagine could also be some people in our most democratic cities and states, well, which is you're vilified for not wearing a mask when the data would suggest you probably don't need to wear one. Good for the people on Nick's side. I'd much rather be on that side of the fence. We'd be almost through this by now. Yeah, I mean, I agree that it's better to err on the side of caution in this case. Now, where it gets tough is on things like school reopening, yeah. where there's there a risk no of disease, and then there's a whole bunch of risks of not other things than disease that you're not seeing. And if you solve for only reducing risk of disease to zero, you just close all the schools in America for this whole upcoming year in maybe two years, but you know, you pay a price for that. I mean, the fundamental thing is to think about these issues. There's a reason people thought the earth was flat. It looks flat. There's a reason that people thought uh, the sun revolves around the earth. It looks like it revolves around the earth. So, so what the, the incredible achievement of science, it starts with saying, just because you know deep inside that something is true, it's obviously true. It might not be true. And you need to go through a process of examining your assumptions and looking for evidence that might lead you to say, what I deeply, deeply believe and seems obvious might not be right and might, not, might need to be amended. It's really, really hard to teach people that, including my own journalism students. Because people always think, I'm right. I know I'm right. You know, there's, there, people are much more self-confident about the truth on the whole than they should be. So let me, let me slightly change the subject because I want to get to the point you're bringing up here, Nick. And this is a one for you, Jane. Have you seen the show Songland? The, the competition. Right. Yes. So Songland is a new show that's out. I, I, I guess I'm allowed to say all these things and give no one credit, but that's fine. Songland's a new show that's out where basically a set of three songwriters are on a stage and four songwriters come in to pitch a song to a musician who is gonna pick up this song and put it on their album. And I know a lot of songwriters in town, and I'll bet you, Jane, that you're a lot like the ones I really know and work with, which is once you have an idea for a song in your head, you don't really wanna hear other people tell you that that chord's wrong or that chorus is wrong, but the entire show is built on the idea that what you know to be true in your heart you have to completely let go to make a million dollars on this song. Am I getting the idea? Well, well, you are to a degree, but that is the way it is even in a professional songwriter uh, life. Yes. I write a song and then I have to bring it to my song plugger, who is my editor, basically. I have to bring it to him. The only difference between him and a book editor is he doesn't actually write changes. He tells me what he thinks needs to be changed. Now, more often than not, because I've been doing this for a hundred years, I, I give him a song and soup to nuts, he'll say, go demo it and we'll, get, we'll go pitch it. But there are times, it happened just recently, where he had a problem with the actual title of the song. And my first reaction, I admit it, 
my first reaction is, what do you mean you have a problem with this song? It's a great title. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this, you know. The song writes itself right toward that hook, you know. But I also, I think, have a certain modicum of intelligence to know that this man is being paid by the company that I'm signed to because he knows what he's doing. He knows what the market will bear. He knows who out there of the artists is looking for songs they're going in to record. And he's had 25 years experience doing this and he's very successful at it. So everybody here has now heard the impassioned plea of a songwriter who was willing to acquiesce to a manager or, or an editor. Why is that any different than, to your point, to, than you who have enormous amounts of street cred telling one of your students, your song may be wrong, back off a little bit, challenge your assumptions. I mean, what, what are we missing? I just, I, I find it hard. It, it takes a struggle, and this is true in my life too. Um, it takes a struggle to understand how powerfully you frame things. Now, this is a journalistic version, right? You're trying to understand what's going on in the world. And you're, you're trying to understand something and you have a set of prior assumptions or a frame or a lens that helps you understand it. And it's really hard to understand it in a different way. You know, I'll give you a couple of examples if you want. Yeah. Um, there was a sort of infamous uh, story in Rolling Stone about a gruesome I incident of sexual assault at the University of Virginia. And uh, the story came out, it was very, very shocking. I won't go into all the gory details. And then it turned out that it was largely fabricated. Um, so the, the then owner and editor-in-chief of Rolling Stone um, called our school and said, will you guys do a forensic report on how we got this story so wrong? So our uh, dean and associate dean wrote a terrific report kind of breaking down what happened. It's a classic case of all these issues that we're talking about. You know, because the reporter knew she was right, the story she was hearing fit all of her prior assumptions about how things go. Uh, she was unskeptical. And I assigned it to my class and one of my students came into my office uh, after class in tears and said, please don't assign that report ever again. And I said, why? And she said, because you cannot doubt the accounts of survivors. You're, you're asking us to question an account of a survivor and, and, and that's not okay. So, you know, it's a complicated issue. She felt really hurt and wounded by that, very hard for her. To, um, to say, I'm gonna assume a professional identity and like really be ruthless about who's telling the truth here. I have to ask you though, were the facts wrong or was the interpretation wrong? To the point about rain versus liking. I, mean, I think the facts were wrong in this instance, but my student didn't want to accept it. I mean, another, um, you know, just to pick on you doctors. Um, so, you know, I say to my students sometimes, doctor wears a white coat, right? You go see a doctor, the doctor's wearing a white coat. Is the doctor wearing a white coat to stay warm? No, it's a very flimsy white coat, right? So the doctor's wearing a white coat to signal to you that I'm a human being, but when I put on the white coat, I'm assuming a professional identity and I'm behaving by a different set of norms uh, that are driven by, you know, scientific principles and the Hippocratic Oath. 
So if the doctor then can start asking you all these personal questions and you, instead of saying that's none of your business, you tell the doctor the answer to your questions. So I say to journalists, what if we wore a white coat? Yeah. What if you put on your journalist white coat? How would you be a different person from the person you were before you put on the white coat? How would you behave differently? How would you think about things differently? How would you act toward other people differently? And that at least gets them thinking that there's this other world than the world where you're just responding instinctively to things. So Dax, how do you feel about all this? Well, you know, it's interesting because I have, I always try to, when I approach conversations like this, I always try to look at it from a lot of different points of view, try to be my own devil's advocate. I think that the thing that jumps out to me, um, again, going back to what you said, Jane, uh, that, that jumped out of me when you, with your discussion, there's a cost-benefit analysis that's going on. And so this is me speaking from the perspective of an informatician. A song, you stand behind a song until the point where you just can't do it anymore because it's worth so much to you, you're willing to not get paid for it, right? Um, a person investigating uh, a situation is willing to adhere to the facts until it butts up against their own belief system where they can no longer pursue it. Something as mundane as, I'm willing to drive a car even though there's a chance that I'll ram into somebody and kill a child. And for some people in this situation, I, I imagine that the people I see wandering around without masks, they're willing to say, this has not affected me, or this is something where my, the cost to me far outweighs my ability to believe what's being told to me. And I think it's not necessarily messaging, because especially that, you know, we're in a very political environment, I think a lot of times messaging is, can be as much noise in the signal as you know, resolving the issue. Yep. I think it's how do we provide the, the value to what's going on such that when someone makes their own internal cost-benefit analysis, it's based not just on the facts coming in, but how they would value them. You know, not an abstract, if you don't wear a mask, you, know, you could potentially affect someone. You know, if I was talking to my, again to my mother, I would say, you know, mom, if you don't wear a mask, I could get it. You know, your grandchildren could get it. And so it's a conversation shift from the more abstract high level to what's, you know, like they used to say, know your audience. I'm listening to what he's saying, but I, I can tell you just personal experience. One of our mutual friends was supposed to go to a grandniece's one-year-old birthday party, right? Grandniece, big deal. A lot of family going to be there. And they decided at the last minute not to go. Grandpa of the one-year-old granddaughter had gotten a COVID test that day, and it was positive, found out that day, and went to that party. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> now, I mean, I'm sorry. But the point that I'm trying to make is we're not, we're not talking about little series of gaps here. This person, he didn't tell everybody at the party until everybody was getting ready to leave. Oh, by the way, I've got the COVID. And of course, everybody just explodes. They couldn't believe it. But oh, I mean, so he told them? He told them at the end of the evening. Oh, he's fair. At the end. And of course, the mom of the baby just lost her mind and said, You can never come back here. You're never going to see her again. I mean, you know, it, it, but, but we're not talking about. I'm consuming information differently than you are. We, we are talking about a gap of believability that this is a thing. This, this may be like a cold, but it's a cold that you can die from, needs yeah. to be hammered over and over and over. And, and, and we're not reaching people. 
Well, I, I had somebody on Twitter today tell me that this was, he, he told me, I can send you the tweet, that China worked with the Democratic Party to make this virus and that the Democrats are the one that have been spreading it around so because of the election. That's what, I mean, that's the gap we're dealing with. We're not dealing with the gap about whether I'm going to wear a mask or not. We're, we're dealing with people that live on Earth, too. You know what I mean? They vote on Earth 1. I want to make you understand that. They vote on Earth 1, but they're living on Earth. In an alternate reality. And that is, to me, the biggest issue that we have. And I think, again, I hate to use this word, but as I was listening to everybody, it almost comes down again to the T word, trust. Who do you trust? Nick, you were talking about your students and... Um, why, you know, we could try and analyze why they don't accept things right away. Is it because they're students and they're not supposed to? They're really supposed to try and think for themselves. Take what you teach them. This is the way I look at it anyway. But you are, to them, you are an authority, an authority figure. Do they trust you enough that you are teaching them? Well, they're in your class. I would hope they trust what you're teaching them. It's a matter of someone saying, well, and I had someone say it the other day. Well, the president said, well, I don't trust a bleeping thing that comes out of his mouth. So you do. You, Mr. So-and-so, obviously trust him. What does that do to your level of understanding when something is right in front of you and you can't understand what you're seeing? I don't know. I don't get it. My student, okay, so my students are overwhelmingly liberal and left. Uh, I would say every other year I have a conservative student, one, had one this year. Um, so that's kind of where they're coming from. They have a very passionate worldview. They want to be crusading journalists, make the world a better place. So one class every year I say, you know, there's like 40, 50 people in the room and I say, who here is considers himself or herself usually herself, because most of my students are women. Uh, who's an objective journalist? No one raises their hand. Really? Ever. Wow. So why don't they raise their hand? Because, and I, I say to them, I'm going to ask you again at the end of class, after we've talked about this, by the end of class, I can get maybe 15% to raise their hand. But they believe that when they hear the word objectivity, they believe that that means both sidesism, this sort of neutral stenographic approach to journalism, where you say, President Trump said yesterday that he has the personally has the authority to close any school in America. Constitutional scholar so and so says, no, the president doesn't have that authority. How am I supposed to know who's right? So I'm going to quote both sides. So I mean, to me, that's not objectivity, but students think that objectivity means reporting without evaluation anything any authority figure says and treating it as truth verbatim. So that's why they're very invested in the idea that they're not objective. But then I say to them in like this year, I say, well, do you want, you know, there's all these people all over the world looking for a COVID vaccine. Do you want them to be objective? Great question. Get a little bit different answer on that. So I have to, let me, let me ask a question about this since you brought up the vaccine and I want to kind of challenge our thinking a little bit. So there are now going to be at least three vaccines that could possibly all 
turn out to be efficacious. But there is still this faction of people who are worried about 5G. And there are anti-vaxxers, <laughs> right? Wait. And, and, and Bill Gates. <laughs> and there's Bill Gates, who they now hate. And of course, Tony Fauci is going to touch one of them, and that one's going to mean it turns black. So I guess the question is, what, what do we do? If we, what kind of evidence do we need? And I love the fact that the students come across as, I mean, Nick, you've, you've opened my eyes on a few pieces of this, number one of which is journalism traditionally was partisan. So where we are is maybe back to where we used to be, yeah, coupled exactly. with Twitter and everything else. How do we give people the evidence they need to make an inference about this vaccine? Either there's sort of two choices. I mean, with it, with journalism students, you can at least try to say, "I'm going to teach you how to read a scientific paper." I'm not going to teach you how to write a publishable scientific paper because we're not going to get there while you're my student. But I'm going to teach, teach you how to read one and evaluate the evidence yourself. You know, by looking at things that journalists don't usually know. What's the sample size? What's the p-value? All those kinds of things. For the general public, I do think at some point you got to go with trust because people, you know, ultimately are not going to be able to evaluate the evidence on their own. And they're just, it's much more effective to have somebody get up and say, I mean, when I was a kid, my best friend when I was a kid had a terrible case of polio and we were the last generation where people got polio and he was never able to walk on his own. You know, the country then had a lot wrong with it, but one of the things was, you know, people saw the horrors of polio and we had a couple of authority figures who invented vaccines and people trusted them and took the vaccine. I saw a story somewhere saying, 70% of people on some poll said they're not going to take a COVID vaccine, you know? Yep. So, so the, the, at some point, you know, there just has to be enough trust and expertise for things like vaccines to be effective. And I don't know how we rebuild that in the current environment. It's very depressing. You're not kidding. I mean, let's, so Dax, I want you to comment on this. So we have Shannon over here, who's an influencer who can tweet something. And how many followers do you have? Um, 30 something thousand. Okay. Good for so we you. have that. <laughs> we have, we have Jane who can write a song about it that Reba McIntyre or somebody else can sing. We have informaticians who can publish papers and do op-eds and do all the things that we typically do. And I have to tell you, and then we have journalists who I would have thought would be the last opportunity we have in this country <laughs> to get people to trust some information source. I'm now very confused. I don't even know that I would know what to tell my parents. So I'm going to start with you, Nick. How are you going to make a decision? On, on the vaccine? Yeah. Um, I, I still believe, I mean, I work in a university. I'm impressed with my colleagues in public health and medicine. And I will ask uh, my friends who do that kind of work what whether to take a vaccine and what vaccine to take. And I will do what they say. So it's trust. Um, it's all yes. about trust. For me personally, I trust the experts. Jane is just like so happy right now. Look at her. <laughs> and I, I'm lucky enough <laughs> to work in an just... environment where I know experts personally, and and I can ask them. But uh, other, I would ask my doctor, my just my 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 regular general practice yeah. doctor. Because you trust, trust your doctor. Because yeah. you trust him. That's exactly what it all boils down to. I really believe that. My my son. I have three children. My middle child got COVID. And he lives in Florida, and he uh, 
he was one of those, he uh, stayed home and worked from home and he isolated himself the way they told him to. But then when that governor opened up the state and said, you know, it's okay, everybody can go out, yada, yada, whatever. And of course I begged him. I'm like, Brian, I am your mother and you have to listen to me. You that works. cannot do this. And if you go out, heaven forbid, you need to wear a mask. You need to make sure you're 12 feet away, not six, 12 feet away. And he, um, he just didn't listen. He felt invincible. And uh, he went out somewhere with his best friends and actually it was to a client meeting and um, he got it. Uh, some of the people there had it and didn't know and they passed it on to some of the people that attended and he got it. We are so super, super grateful that he had a very mild case and uh, I mean on my knees, thankful, so thankful yeah. that he's okay. Yeah. But he is, he did say to me, he said, Okay, so, you know, I should have been wearing a mask. People need to be wearing masks. You know, I thank God he didn't have a bad case of it. I don't know what that would have instilled in him. But this mild case, it, it was not fun, even though it was mild. Yeah. Um, he, he agreed that he was wrong, that he should have been wearing a mask. And he was actually, he said, I think I'm going to stay home for a while. <laughs> I'm like, oh. So that sounds like a good idea. Now that you've got an immunity, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Dad, that's how do you feel? You don't know how long that lasts, right? Exactly. I heard exactly. today the CDC is saying 90 days. You know what? Yes, that, that's, that's what my, they're saying, three months. And, that, and that's my question, Kevin, about a vaccine. But, but, but I guess my question is, Kevin, if, if you can catch this again, and there are staggering amounts of evidence that you can catch it again, what does a vaccine do? Well, here's the answer very simply. Um, first of all, I'm a part of one of the vaccine trials, okay? Um, I signed up, they never called me. Yeah, that's because I took your spot. I saw your name on there, I crossed it off, put my name. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the bottom line is that you're used to this. The flu vaccine, you take it every year. There's slightly, there's a bunch of reasons for that, one of which is that the, the virus itself slightly changes from year to year. Right. But the other is that the immunity for the flu is simply not lifelong. Um, and so, at least not to the usual flu, for some of the more specific examples of the flu in the past. But coronaviruses, this particular viruses, this is the cold, common cold. Most people catch the common cold a lot of times. So we would have expected that if you took the vaccine, you had some window of time where it was likely to work, and maybe it attenuates, lowers the risk of the disease for the times after that. So I think we have to learn. I, you know, it's funny that you guys are both, and, and I saw Nick nodding about the CDC data about 90 days, but those studies are actually very weak right now. So right, I, think, I know. I couldn't right. even believe that I saw that because they don't even know for sure that right. 90 days is solid. Correct. I mean, you know, and, and so that's the other thing. We want to talk about trust and objectivity and stuff. Why would they even put that out? Well, I think they put it out for political reasons. That's what I think. And, and, and They're why? trying to satisfy two ends of the spectrum. They're trying to be uh, honest and, and make people aware of what's going on, but then they have this other agenda. And to me, that's, that's scary when the scientific community yields to the political community um, for whatever reason, that scares me. So I think that... Um, you know, I haven't seen this particular information, but 
Um, I think I have seen where th some things have been put out that were preprint um, or, you know, information that is a little speculative and ca with some caveats. What do I think about it? I think that, you know, inherently all information is good, but the problem is not everybody knows how to evaluate it. And I think that putting details out where, and again, this is not necessarily my area, but if something goes out that really hasn't had a chance to, to get the rigor that you'd like to see from a vaccine, like a flu vaccine or something like that, um, I won't call it irresponsible, but I think it, it, create, it puts more noise in the signal. It makes it harder to come to the right conclusion. Well, while we've been sitting here, I've actually quickly zoomed, uh, Googled this particular issue. Um, and in fact, it is preliminary information. It's not intended to be definitive. But I think the trick there has to do with understanding evidence. This is a great example. I'm glad you brought it up. The CDC is not saying at this point anything definitive. They're saying that there are data to support the fact that there are patients who have either not had an immune reaction, we know about that, or that there are patients who have had a very low level of titer that goes away, which is essentially not having an immune reaction. Mm -hmm. But so, nobody knows how to interpret that evidence. So Nick's me, point is right. Okay. Go ahead, Cass. We have different strata of, of how of people who receive information and whereas, you know, I might feel comfortable looking through a scientific journal, uh, someone in my family, for example, is going to get it through the abstraction of some other news source. So that very data that you're looking at could be distilled to a more abstract concept. It could be, you know, it may work or it may not work. And someone may simply get the case and may get more uh, the information that says people received a positive result. And so, you know, ultimately, it's that, it's that distillation and further abstraction that then becomes kind of the... Um, the whispers game, if you will, for receiving information on how to act. So I think that's also when I look when I brought up the subject of how to look at this as an informatician, what you know, what are the principles involved with that? I realized that we were losing information along the way as well, yeah. and not not because people were trying to uh, misplace information, but simply the product of translation, if you will. Are we wrong to hope? that journalists can in some way help to distill the noise from Twitter and Facebook and you know, social media that we've made ultra-partisan. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we're wrong, but, but I think, well, let's go to a sort of extreme case. I don't know if any of you ever look at 538.com. Yeah. Um, that, that's what I would say is the extreme of being rigorous about evidence. And I really, really trust what they say. You know. People, you, you have to discipline yourself not to pick and choose news sources based on whether they say what you already think. If it's on a matter like, you know, to pick a Fox News favorite, is there or isn't there a war on Christmas? Like, that's not a research question. You know, that's a preference question. So that's fine. If you, th you want to watch Fox News, they'll tell you there's a war on Christmas. If you want to watch MSNBC, they won't tell you there's a war on Christmas. So... Um, but but this is a matter of life and death, you know, the COVID vaccines in particular. So so you really owe it to yourself. It's, so it's not just what the journalists do, because we don't have this regulated sort of chokehold environment anymore where we're the only information source. And people have infinite information sources, and they can find anything they want. Um, so So as a news consumer, you have to be able to say to yourself, if it's a matter of life and death, if it's a matter of my own and my family's survival, will that motivate me to get beyond, well, I agree with these guys most of the time and I disagree with these guys most of the time and actually look at 
who's being careful about processing information and making truth claims. And you'd want to go with them. I mean, that's just where it has to go. I actually feel better from having you said hearing that because okay, I mean, honestly, good. I think the bottom line about this is, I mean, the point that we all have a different set of news that we pay attention to, and maybe we need to be careful about that. That trust. I mean, we, we, when I was growing up, I was growing up in the you know segregated deep south in Louisiana, and um, you know we definitely had right wing media at the time. And you know, I go over to my friends' houses, and their parents would have these like weird little magazines that you didn't see on newsstands. <laughs> I've seen these. Called, you know, the real truth. <laughs> yes. But but the mainstream was was the only thing publicly available, and 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 they you know, didn't do things like deny scientific evidence. Right. So it was there, but it was like underground. Now everything's out on the surface. And it, it, it you know, it, it asks more of news consumers because they have to make, you know, discipline themselves to make a real judgment. Wow. One thing I would ask um, you, Nick, is that how much is it, now, I have a personal theory that it periodically humanity goes through kind of like a, uh, an information schism or you know, just so conflict, if you will, where some new technology comes out, all of a sudden everyone has to learn how to use that response, that technology responsibly, whether it's a book, the radio, when Marconi came out. You know, so now we've got the internet and you have this explosion. And it seems like every time this happens, some technology comes out that disseminates information freely, it causes a spasm within culture. And it's so I'm wondering. I could not agree more. It happened when radio was invented, it happened when television was invented. Um, and, and, uh, and, and you're just now, we're right in the early stages of a big moment in the process you're describing, where essentially the world's saying, whoops, maybe a 100% free and open internet wasn't such a great idea in the first place. And we're mm -hmm. starting more in Europe than in the US to have this conversation about, you know, do we really want to have a world where anything can go up there? Or do we want to think about, do we really want hate speech? Do we really want obviously untrue claims about scientific matters and things like that? So I, I completely agree. We're having the same cycle and we're going through it again. Yeah. And, you know, it occurs to me that it seems that even, well, it doesn't quite level the playing field to your point, but it makes all information seem equal in a way. Yeah. I can have an authoritative news source, which I would depend upon, but then I can also have someone who has a Twitter following with, you know, of an immense amount um, who just happens to have a, a larger megaphone. You know, not necessarily you. But, <laughs> but, but my, my point being is that it's, there's, an, there's a, almost an, an equality to information that's unearned to a certain degree because of this explosion of information. And I think that also clouds the signal, if you will, a bit, because you can have someone who's got scientific rigor backing what they're saying. Then you can also have someone who just happens to have a really funny turn of phrase convey equal amounts of authority. And then you can have state-sponsored terrorism, which infuses mm -hmm. into all of these systems what appears to be perfectly valid information. Right. And so that's, you know, again, for me, and I, I keep coming back to the idea of what is the value judgment you're trying to propose because no one wants their family to die. No one wants their loved ones to die. But how do you communicate to them that the value judgment they're making, it's not that they want, the, you know, their action will cause someone to die, but there's a responsibility in their actions, you know, and making them understand that even though it doesn't seem to affect them, they may be living in a house in the woods and only go to town once a month, but that once a month has value. 
and conveying to them that even if they believe they all think it's all a hoax and it's whatever, but there's still value in keeping that open mind and communicating in a level that maybe it's maybe and maybe it's conversation about learning how to communicate again to your audience. I think one of the things I would also say that uh, to this point of the the political discussions that pervade everything, um, I think that you know over the course of the past few decades we've created this division of discussion where people are on their side of the fence and things are always tinted by those points of view. And maybe some, maybe some of this is simply the learning, the relearning the art of engaging in the conversation of the dialectic, the didactic. Now, when did journalism become so, um, and, and I could be wrong about this. I, I, when I was growing up to me, a journalist reported facts. They report, they didn't make the news, they reported the news, okay? But now it seems like, and even the reporters that I admire, that I respect, that I trust, there's a lot of almost editorializing going on within the reporting of the facts. And that's what seems to cloud it. And that's what seems to, you know, you're getting the reporter's subjective opinion almost about what he's reporting and that to me is when things get muddied i just always thought hey you know you're a reporter you report what happened you let the op-ed do the uh the editorializing am i wrong i don't know this is a very very hot issue within journalism right now uh this is what we're all fighting about in journalism um i think the 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 way you were raised journalists under 40 will hear that and they'd say, well, those days are over now. And part of it is, you know, so Twitter exists. Journalists who work for, you know, the New York Times are told you need to be on Twitter and to build up a following on Twitter. Twitter is not a, is a medium that asks you to be real and have a personality and have an opinion. So immediately when you're covering, you know, the White House for the New York Times and you have a popular Twitter feed, you're really negotiating two very different worlds and different voices. Um, you know, a lot of younger journalists are like my students. They, they believe they're there to make social change and that they do their journalism to do that. And, and that, that entails, that's why they react so negatively to the idea of objectivity. Um, you know, they don't want to just tell you the facts. They want to make the world better, you know? Um, so it, it's- According it, to them. Yeah, but it's a very hot and heavy debate, like right now in journalism. Wow. So Shannon, get off of Twitter. You're messing up everything. <laughs> it's my whole life at this point. <laughs> yeah. I'm so a guys- Old shut in. What else am I supposed to do? Stop. Hey, listen, we have, I've, I've got like three minutes left here. So I wanted to ask just two questions. One to you, Jane, you know what it's going to be. And the okay. other one is going to be to everybody else, which is to say, has anybody learned anything about how they're going to manage information based on today? I actually have, but I'm probably the dumbest person here. So I always a say lot. that. And you're always <laughs> I have learned a lot. No, I've learned a lot, actually. So tell us I, one thing. What's going to be different about the way you manage information now that you've heard? Well, I think it's the way um, it's first, it's got to be the way you consume the information before you can manage it, I would think. You know, I, like I said, I just, I do. I listen to people that I always listen to because I trust them. I read 
the publications that I read because I've always trusted them. You know, it might behoove me, I'm not gonna watch Fox, but it might behoove me to um, open up a little bit and, and get some other input. I don't know, I maybe not, I don't know. I just, but I, it's it, what, what Nick just said is really interesting to me because I've been thinking about that for a while about this difference between reporting the news and making the news or creating the news, you know. Um, and, and you see it, you read it all the time and you go, well, that's your opinion, but this is not an opinion page. This is a news page and I just want the facts and I need to trust you. We trusted Walter Cronkite. I did. Dax, what, about you? what have you gotten out of this? You know, I think I've gotten, I've gotten a richer discussion. Um, you know, I don't know that it necessarily changes how I approach things, but I've got a bit more understanding from, certainly from, again, the, the journalism side. Um, because I'm, I'm a consumer, I don't have much of the you know, kind of the, the backstory, if you will. Uh, so it's interesting to understand kind of the, the tension going on in, that, in the ongoing discussions there. That helps me understand more of what's coming to me through what, what I guess what I would term more mainstream channels. And I personally, I'll have to tell you, I did not know about the history of journalism. So one of the things that I think I've, I can appreciate from this now is it's an evolving field. And that we've, we've put journalists in a very awkward position by having the journalist be a part of a story as well as the story itself. And it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves. I, I think the conversation about where the internet may be harming as well as helping is something that we all knew about. And it's good to hear that. And in informatics, we can do stuff to help with that. Shannon, what are you, what are you hearing here? I think it just reinforced some stuff that I, that I already believe, which is a lot of what we're getting, we're getting heavily seasoned with somebody's opinion. And it, and it is not on the label, on the warning label. This is, this is an opinion piece. I understand what you don't like about MSNBC. I get that because I listen to it a lot and almost all of it is opinion they have no, but they also think opinion. more like you think so you yeah, know what I'm saying? but they drop a fact about the news and then it's opinion 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 right. but i know that as i consume it exactly exactly right i mean yep. i also believe when you know if they say wear a mask that you know they've got the doctors on there i trust those doctors that they have on there yeah. that kind of thing we are living in a really, really difficult time to get people to see what you're hearing is not news. Sean Hannity has admitted in an interview, he doesn't tell the news, he's not a journalist. It's he not their news section, that is their commentary section. Exactly. All of them, Tucker, that whole thing is not okay. news. So let me ask Nick, hold on. So wait, hold it, stop. So Nick, what have you gotten from this? I guess the main thing I've gotten from this is I don't live in a world where people ignore public health advice about coronavirus <laughs> as frequently as I'm hearing about from you guys in Tennessee. So uh, I, I, that's kind of a wake-up call to me because, uh, you know, where I live, as I say, there's some error in the other direction, but, you know, you're out on, I mean, even people walking down the street are wearing masks. Um, so I haven't haven't really had to think about people like you know the grandfather who tests positive and then goes to a party. Um, so that's something I've learned. Yeah, and I think a one way to look at that is that the challenge for people who are professional journalists is to who who want to change the world is to kind of embrace the diversity that is the United States in terms of people who 
who are you know, obviously concerned about anti-Black racism, where people who are concerned about education in the South, where people who are concerned about over-education in the North, where property taxes, and to help, help the news meet those people where they are so that there's some prayer of changing hearts and minds. I think that's at least what I hope we can start to do in this country with trusted news sources. I, I would love to get us back to Walter Cronkite. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Mm. Yeah. So Jane, songwriter Jane, is there any song that you've done that's anywhere close to this topic? Well, you if asked you don't have a ton of time, if you could... the other day, and I just happened to have one now. All right. Just play, <laughs> just play, play up through the chorus, right? The hook. Just, okay. okay. I'm so going to add the rest of it to the end of this for people to hear, but tell us the story. Oh God, oh God. I am not in any voice today. This is my disclaimer. I'm having trouble speaking, let alone singing, but I will croak this one out. But this is about information. It is. It's that song I told you about that I had a, was very fortunate to have a big hit with Reba McIntyre. And it's about receiving or not receiving information. The name of the song is The Last One to Know. So it, it's, it's about... That's a great one. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. But I do want to say that um, someone once said to me, oh, you know, I was the last one to know also. And I said, well, you know what I learned? You're never the last one to know. You're always the first one to know. You're just the last one to admit it. And because uh, <laughs> having gone through this, this is completely autobiographical with a little poetic license built in anyway. Okay, so I'm gonna try and do this. <clears throat> I didn't see the fire burn to ashes. I couldn't feel the winds of change. I was lost inside the passion Blinded by the memory of a flame Guess I should have felt it when you touched me I should have seen it in your eyes I believed you really loved me. Oh, now why can't I believe you've said goodbye? Oh, tell me why is the last one to know, the first one to cry, and the last to let go? That was great. Very good. Hey, Yay! Can I have permission to put that song at the end of the podcast for people to hear? Oh my God! You should put Reba's version on as it. As, as long as you defend me in court. Oh, totally. All right. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much. This was great. Okay, that was great stuff. Thanks everybody for being a part of that. As promised by Jane, here is a better rendition 
of the song that she had an opportunity to sing for us. Thanks again. I didn't see the fire burn to ashes I couldn't feel the winds of change I was lost inside the passion See